0: Good morning church family morning. my name is Carter It's so good to be with you guys again today I was I was here a few uh, months ago got to meet several of you and what a joy it is to be back with you this morning what a privilege it is to step into uh, the pulpit here and again if uh, just I'm unfamiliar to you me and Caleb are friends uh, we go back to our seminary days And just an honor to step in and preach where he preaches because the Lord has truly given him the heart of a pastor and a shepherd, and he cares for his flock. And so I know that it is an honor to uh, be in this place this morning. If you would, take your Bibles and turn to 1 Samuel chapter 7. We'll be in verses 1 and 2, primarily verse 2. And the theme, if you want to call it that, this morning will be one of waiting. We already sung about it, waiting on the Lord. We already sung the truth of the joy that comes from waiting on the Lord. I even uh, tested Sam Riley's uh, ability to wait this morning because I was very late in arriving uh, my family and I drove from Brandon this morning, and we got a little bit lost, and uh, so I, I texted Sam and told him I would be there, but uh, it was, it was going to be right, right before, and uh, I'm sorry if I, I gave you a small heart attack, Sam, but thank you guys for having us uh, today. We'll read this text together, verses 1 and 2, and then we'll look and see what God has for us this morning. It says in chapter 7 of 1 Samuel, So the people of kiriath Jereem came for the ark of the Lord and took it to Abinadab's house on the hill. They consecrated his son, Eleazar, to take care of it. And time went by until 20 years had passed since the ark had been taken to kiriath Jereem. And then the whole house of Israel longed for the Lord. My wife and I have four children. Our third child and our youngest daughter came to our family through adoption. And when we first started on the adoption journey, we knew even back when we were dating and in college that the Lord had laid the care of orphans as a conviction in our lives. We think that's a biblical thing for God's church to care for the orphan. And for us, that personally was a conviction where we've began to feel over time that we needed to bring a child into our home. That's not for everyone, although everyone cares for the orphan within the family of God. Not everyone brings a child into their home, but we felt like that was something the Lord was asking us to do. And as we prayed about it, we began to realize that that now was the time, and this was about six years ago for us, and we believed uh, that just because of what we had heard and, and some of what we knew that the biggest obstacles for us in entering into adoption would be maybe the legality of it and some, maybe some of it would be the financial burden that it would cause. And where would we come up with the money in order uh, to do this? But really, what became evident for us is that the thing that the Lord had asked us to do, the most difficult aspect of it, was not the legality. In fact, we had people surrounding us that, that made everything go very smooth for us. In fact, even the day that we walked into the courtroom, we thought we were gonna have to present our case before the judge and be very articulate about all the reasons why we should let this child into our home. And you know, we combed our children's hair over and made sure everybody looked presentable And we got in there, and our lawyer said, hey, thanks for coming. I actually already talked to the judge. It's already settled. I was like, oh, great. This is great. The legality wasn't an issue. And in fact, by God's grace, the finances wasn't an issue. Not because we're made of money. I assure you we're not. But the Lord's people just gave and gave to us. The Lord provided miraculously at every deadline that we needed money. There was a particular time where, where we needed specifically $600, and my wife found $600 in a bag that we had not seen since we had moved into our house. Now, how we got away with not knowing where $600 was, I don't know. But the Lord provided. Now, the biggest difficulty for us, the biggest burden, the biggest thing that churned in our hearts was the waiting. You see, somewhere in the back of our minds, we figured that if, as long as we prayed correctly, as long as we opened our home and were obedient, that it would just happen, that it would happen pretty quickly. And then when it didn't, we began to adjust our prayers. You know, we began to do that dance that we do often with the Lord where we began to say, Oh, okay, I get it. You want us to, like, learn something. So, like, what is it that I'm supposed to learn? Let me learn it real quick. And then you'll do it. And we began to do this spiritual bargaining with the Lord of, okay, you know, maybe you want me to have this attitude of, like, I don't care when it happens. And then it'll happen. And so we began to not care when it would happen. And we continued to wait. No, the biggest thing for us was the waiting. It was difficult We because we then we began to question, Lord, was this really for us? Did you really ask us to do this? Did you really put this on our hearts? Was this really you? We began to question, well, maybe this isn't really what the Lord wanted for our family. And I don't know what in your season of life, the Lord has where he has you exactly. But I could almost be guaranteed that in a room this size, there's many of us, if not most of us, that are waiting for something. Something that you're praying through for your family. A miracle that you're waiting on for a loved one. Something, perhaps this morning, that's particularly weighty on you, that only you and the Lord know, and you've been waiting for a while, and you're wondering, Lord, when? When will this come about? Do you want it to be? And you're seeking His face, but you're just wondering why while you wait. And in these verses, we see a particular time span lapse. It's quick as we read it in Scripture, isn't it? It's easy to read the words, much harder to live them. But it says in verse 2, time went by until 20 years had passed since the ark had been taken. 20 years had passed I'm going to give you some context, and then we're going to zoom back in on those 20 years and ask, what was going on in that? Because many of us feel like, and if we're honest, the whole of the Christian life is a, is a period of waiting, longer than 20 years, in fact. It's a period of waiting for the hope that we have found in Jesus Christ, but living in a world that it's not yet realized fully. And it's waiting for God to deliver on the promises that we so eagerly hold to. And so, to give us some context, though, of what's, what's going on, the people of Israel have been in a long series of sinful behavior. They have not been following after the Lord. They have not been living for God. They're surrounded by enemies on all sides, and in fact, they've gone through hundreds of years now of a cycle that you can find in the book of Judges where they fall into sin, they're enslaved by people around them, and then eventually they cry out to the Lord and the Lord comes and He delivers them through a deliverer, a judge, someone to come and do what is right for the people of God. And here, we find the people doing similar things than they have been doing. They were worshiping false idols. They were going after the gods of the nations around them. In fact, they were so contorted in their thinking that... When the Philistines begin to gather and their armed forces are ready to attack Israel, and these are in the chapters preceding this, the people of Israel are so out of tune with following after God that they take the Ark of the Covenant, the sacred symbol of God's presence with His people that is supposed to be in the tabernacle, and they use, try to use it as a good luck charm. They say, let's bring it out to battle and then we'll win. They're not concerned with God. They're not concerned with showing their enemy that God is the victor. They're concerned with whether or not they can use this good luck charm to help them win. And so the Ark of the Covenant is actually captured, it's taken by the Philistines. God is merciful and actually ordain circumstances to where the Philistines no longer want it, and they send it back. And now the Ark of the Covenant is back in the land, and this is what we find in the first verse here, is that the people of God, after a long series of events of figuring out what they need to do, they take it and they put it at this man's house. God's presence, at least symbolically, has returned to Israel. But we know that even though this ark that contained the Ten Commandments, the bud from Aaron's staff, this was a symbol of God's presence, yes, but it wasn't actually God's presence. And we distinguish between the two because we still find the people following after their false gods. We still know that they're living in the same way that they were. And so even though they have the ark back, they have the ark back, but this doesn't really do them much good, until we find them in verse 2, when they begin to seek after the Lord. They begin to long for the Lord, my version says. The actual word there in verse 2 is that they begin to lament after the Lord, So, there's a certain element of sorrow here where they recognize that what they had been doing was proclaiming Yahweh with their mouth, but in their actions and in their lives, they were living a completely different story. And what they're realizing now is they lament and long for the Lord. They come to this moment of brokenness is that they can have all the days they want with the Ark of the Covenant. They can have all the days they want of going to this place of worship and this place of worship, but if God's presence is not with them, then they don't want it. And there's a reverse longing that David expresses in the Psalms. You may remember it is better is one day in your house than a thousand elsewhere, Right? And you as a believer in Christ who have the Holy Spirit, you know this to be true deep within yourself that it is better for one moment, one second with the Lord than it would be to be anywhere else. And so here you have this contrast presented to us in these verses of the ark arriving back but the people's hearts still not being in tune with the one the ark represents, And they finally, after 20 years, come to this recognition, we need the Lord. We don't just need this ark back in our land. We need God to be king over us. We need the Lord. And thankfully, by God's mercy, they find (coughs) Samuel. And if you were to continue to read verses 3 and onward, Samuel is, as a prophet appointed by God, ready to point them in the right direction. He says, now that if your hearts are truly in tune with God, if you're really in this place of brokenness, you really want to follow Him, then set aside the idols that you've been following and devote yourselves wholly to the Lord. And they do, and there's this moment where the Philistines begin to gather, and Samuel intercedes for the people and prays for them. And it says that God hears Samuel. He hears his prayer. And instead of allowing the enemy to take over, which is probably what they deserved, God has mercy on them and delivers them. And so, we know that this is what takes place, that they have this moment of repentance. God hears their cry through this intermediary, this advocate, the prophet Samuel, who says, Lord, don't let these people be destroyed. And he listens. He sees their hearts being genuine in their brokenness and repentance, and he listens. And so... We wonder though, and this is where our text becomes alive for us this morning in that particular phrase, in that verse, these 20 years that have passed. How did this come about? I want to ask that question to us as we read back through it. How did this come about? Did they just suddenly decide, oh, let's, let's follow the Lord? What happened? Well, I think as you read through 1 Samuel, it's not much assuming to think that Samuel, the prophet, has been preaching and teaching this entire time. Now, certainly we praise God for this moment of clairvoyance that they have. It's very reminiscent, isn't it, of the story of the prodigal son that Jesus tells, right? When the prodigal son, he rebels, he turns away, he goes, he squanders all of his father's wealth, And then what happens? He finds himself in a pigsty, feeding pigs, wanting to eat what they're eating. And it's almost like all of a sudden he is overcome by the reality of his situation. And for anyone today who you're caught in sin and no one knows, I pray that over you right now, even in this moment, that there would be an awakening of your heart to realize the gravity of where you are. And many of us pray that for loved ones or co-workers or friends who we know do not know Christ, who are headed down a path of destruction, much like that prodigal son was. But it says that in that story Jesus tells that he came to his senses. And we we pray for that moment for many people that we know. That they would come to their senses, that that their minds would be illuminated to the truth of where they are so that they can look elsewhere for the help that they need. This is what's happening here with the people of Israel. My wife and I, we've been married for for 13 years, and if you're, if you're married in the room, you, you may be able to sympathize with this slightly, but we have, we've gone through phases in our marriage of, of the, uh, what should we say, uh, the sleeping uh, difficulties, arrangements between us. You know, I apparently snored, that's what she tells me, I've, I have no proof of that, um, She's never provided proof of that, so I don't, I don't know exactly she says that, though. And every now and then, you know, one of us will do something in our sleep that the other one doesn't appreciate. And one particular night, I was having a dream that I was an FBI agent, and I'm uncertain why you're laughing, uh, because that to me seems very, very natural. Um, I'm obviously very cool and astute and uh, could definitely do that job. But I was having a dream that I was an FBI agent, and I was assigned the task of finding the Unabomber. And I don't know if it was like the Unabomber, you know what I'm saying? But it was a Unabomber, if you will, and I was was following him. I was tracking him. And I spent a long time in my dream— Apparently, dreams only happen in like two seconds in your brain. But in in the dream, it was like five years and that I was chasing this guy. And I had, you know, like in my apartment uh, in New York City, because that's where I was, um, I, I had the, you know, the thread lines and the photos and everything drawn out. And I was looking for this guy. And then I was drinking coffee in a cafe in New York City. This is all in my dream still. And I see him come out. And I know it's him. You know, you know how like in your dream, like somebody can look completely different, but you know, it's them kind of deal. And so I start running super slow motion because it's dreaming and I, I start running towards him across the street and I jump on him and I just realize in my dream that there's so much anxiety built up in me because I've been chasing this guy for five years. I'm so like, so angry with him at all the, you know, terrible things that I think he's done. And so I just like put my elbow right into his back and, and, and I'm just like, you know, shoving him down, making sure he knows that you know I'm here and and I'm taking control. and at that moment, my wife cried out in pain because I was repeatedly <laughs> hitting her uh, in the back and and you know she when she cried out, I realized what I had done, but of course. I didn't move, you know, I didn't say anything, I kept my eyes closed, I thought, well maybe if I don't say anything, she won't say anything. She did though. She let me know that she was upset and she let me know that she was hurt, you know, and I, and I said, and I said, are, you know, are you okay? Because I care, you know, I wanted to know. And she said, you know, no, I'm not okay. I, I think I have d- deep tissue scarring, you know, because of, because of what, you've, you know, what you've done. And so I sat there for a minute, and the only logical thing that I could think of was to say, if it makes you feel any better, I thought you were the Unabomber. <laughs> Hoping that that would somehow console her in her moment of distress. Um, and then I went to sleep, and... and we may or may not have spoken of it the next morning, but I did have this moment, right, as we all do coming out of a dream, coming out of uh, this, these moments where we have this moment of clairvoyance where we recognize what we've done. We, we recognize the weight of the situation that we are in, and the Israelites are right in the middle of this moment for themselves, where they are looking around. The ark is not where it's supposed to be. Even though it's come back into the land of Israel, it's not in the tabernacle. It's not where it should be. In fact, the place where it was, at Shiloh, has probably been destroyed at this point in the last battle that they had with the Philistines. Their priests have all died, the people that they had relied on before, and now all they're left with is this ark in a place that it's not supposed to be. The tabernacle, we're not even sure where it is, and then they have one prophet and they realize after some 20 years they wake up to this realization this isn't where we want to be and their hearts begin to long to long for the lord and we ask the question how how did that happen how did their hearts turn like this? And so, I want us to think about Samuel. I want us to think about what he was doing in those 20 years. Because he knows that their hearts are far from God. He knows that they have turned away from the Lord. He knows that they are doing this dance between saying they serve God and actually serving Baal and other false gods. He knows this. In fact, he's preaching the Word to them. He's sharing with them the stories of God's deliverance of the people from Egypt. He's sharing the stories of Abraham and Isaac and God's faithful covenant love upon them. He's sharing the stories of Joseph and how God protected him and loved him, even in the midst of being a slave. He's sharing all of these truths of who God is with these people. And seemingly, for 20 years, they say, good message, man. And they turn away, and they go home, and they live their life. And so, particularly for Samuel, what a trying 20 years this must have been. Now, it's probable that this isn't the beginning of Samuel's ministry. He was already ministering before this, but we know of at least this time period that's stamped for us where he is being faithful. And the people around him, the people that, he's tr- that he cares about, that he's trying to influence, they seemingly do not care. Their hearts are turned away from God. And so what was he to do? What was he to do in the waiting? Don't you know that he went to God? Don't you know he asked the Lord, Lord, I don't know if you've ever done this, but I can imagine Samuel asking him, Lord, uh, I'm okay to keep doing this, but can you give me kind of an idea of how long this is going to be? And I don't know how long you've walked with the Lord. Maybe He does for you what He rarely does for me, but He just doesn't share that very often. He doesn't share the end date. In fact, more often than not, the Lord's encouragement to us is much like my wife. She shared with me something the Lord was doing to minister to her heart that I'll share with you guys. Our same daughter, Quinn, who we adopted, she's easily distracted and so, my wife has found herself, more often than not, just looking at uh, Quinn and saying, hey, Quinn, eyes, eyes on me. Eyes on me. Like, I want you to, to look at me, right? Because if she's not looking at you, she's doing this, and you're telling her to do something, and then a few minutes later, you're like, why haven't you done that? And she's like, I don't know. You know, she n- never heard. And so, she keeps telling her, eyes on me. Eyes on me. I need you to look at me. And follow me, and especially if we go to uh, a store, you know, our, we teach our kids all the same, but, <clears throat> you know, if you asked our older two, you know, like, hey, if somebody walked up to you, as someone you don't know, and they said, hey, do you want some candy, you know, and follow me, they'd be like, no, I need to ask my parents, you know, they, they, would, they would reject, if you walked up, any of you, okay, this is maybe too much to share. I don't know if I trust all you this much. But if any of you walked up to my, my four-year-old daughter, Quinn, and said, hey, come with me. I have candy in my van. She would say, okay, where are we going? I, I love candy. Uh, my name's Quinn. Uh, what, else, what else do you want to do? You know, she, she would immediately go with you. In fact, you wouldn't even have to have candy. You could just say, come with me, and she'd say, okay, I, I'm doing it. And so we have to continually remind her, hey, eyes on me. Like when we're in the store, she wanders off, we say, eyes on me, follow me. More often than not, when the waiting happens, this is the Lord's message to us. Not, hey, look down the road, and I'm gonna show you the end result, but rather he repeatedly tells us over and over again, eyes on me. You follow me today. And what does Jesus say? Let tomorrow worry about itself. It has enough worry of its own. And when tomorrow arrives, I'll call the sun to rise just like I did the day before, and I'll be ready to be here with you just like I was today. And so day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, for 20 years, the call on Samuel's life was Hey, eyes on me, be faithful. You preach the word, let me worry about them. You, you be faithful in what I have given you, and I'll worry about them. And so, what does this look like for us? Well, we already discussed some of the ways in which we might find ourselves in a period or season of waiting but perhaps you're waiting this morning for something to change in your marriage, a healing to take place. Perhaps this morning there's something between you and a friend that you know is not as it should be. Perhaps there's a relationship that you have with one of your parents that is broken in need of healing. Perhaps as a congregation there are things you are waiting on the Lord to do here in your city and you've been praying for it. You've been yearning for it. You've been asking for it. For revival to break out. But the Lord is asking you to wait. The Lord is not leaving you in the waiting. He's absolutely doing things while we wait. So, I want to ask the question then, what is it that God offers to us in the waiting? What is He giving to us in the waiting? Because we all love the instantaneous moment of deliverance, don't we? Especially as Americans, we like it to happen quickly. But even as biblical Christians, we revel in the moments of grand deliverance. We love the Red Sea crossing, and we forget about the 400 years before. We love the moment of deliverance where the lame man at the pool of Bethesda gets up and walks, but we forget about the 37 years that he endured. We love the road to Damascus where Paul suddenly becomes a believer in that which he was fighting moments before. If we forget about the death of Stephen and the prayers of the saints and the years of persecution that took place before that moment. So what does God offer to us in those moments of waiting. What does he give to us there that can be a comfort to us? First, I think that he reveals. He reveals things in the waiting over time. He certainly did that for the people of Israel here, didn't he? Slowly, he was revealing to them this difference between what they were saying with their mouths and where their hearts were. He was showing them something. In the waiting. He was showing them their resilience and their commitment to themselves and not to Him. All of us, in order to faithfully walk after God, must first come to this recognition that we, given the choice, will always choose ourselves. We need the aid of something supernatural in order to follow after God. We need God's presence and His Holy Spirit's intervention in our life in order to follow after Him. And I'm not just talking about the moment of conversion. I'm talking about daily walking with Him. And what God offers in periods of waiting is this repeated recognition that if He doesn't do it, it won't happen. And there is few places better to be and few gifts more sweet to the believer in Christ than to know in your heart of hearts that all these things I wish would happen, all these things I'm asking for, all these moments I wish would come true, that yes, I want them, but what I want more than that is to recognize that if God doesn't do it, it won't happen. And what's sweet for the believer in that moment is to recognize that's what I actually want more than anything. I want God to do it. I want to know to my core that it was God doing the work and not any trick of man, not any manipulation of me, not some happenstance of world circumstances. I want to know that it was God who did it. And oftentimes, the longer you wait, the more assured you are If he doesn't do it, no one will. If he doesn't do it, it won't happen. So God reveals in us this kind of commitment to ourselves, which needs to be washed away so that all we're left with after the waiting is saying, if you don't do it, it's not going to happen, and I trust you. I trust you more than I trust anyone any power in me to cause this, any power in me to manipulate this, any power in me to gain this somehow by my strength, I want to know at the end of this that you're the one who did it, that you authored this, that you spoke this into being, not me. It reveals to us our pride of wanting to control circumstances around us, because if we're in control, we'd do it now. We don't have it in our sinful flesh, the propensity to be in control and yet wait. You see, it is a godly characteristic. It is one otherworldly outside of here that has complete authority and control and power, which God does, and yet He chooses to wait. Only God does that. We don't. And so, when we demand it now, what's revealed in us in that waiting is not just impatience, but actually a pride in us that says, I want to be in control, because if I was in control, then I could do it, and I would do it now. And so by forcing the waiting, what happens is God's revealing in us that pride. And so in doing, the Israelites, by having this period of waiting before them, are given God's grace of receiving this rebuke, God's grace of being exposed, In God's grace of when they turn to seek him, he's there, ready to be found. And so, they seek him out. They lament for the Lord. They turn their eyes. But also in the waiting, it's not just revealing something that's in them, but it's also producing something in them and in us it's producing a godly kind of endurance. We said earlier that this ability that God has to be all-powerful and yet not exercise that power immediately, that's a godly attribute. When we are being trained by the Spirit of God, walking daily, eyes on Him every day, waiting for Him, waiting for Him, trusting Him, we are being built and into the character of Christ. You see, God is a waiter. He doesn't mind to wait. It does not bother Him in the least. Even in this passage, we see this reflected in God's character. The ark is not where it should be. The people aren't even treating it as they were instructed to treat it. Does He Does he strike them down immediately? He could. He's powerful enough to do so. He would be righteous to do so because they're in sin. Does he? No, because he's patient, because he waits when others would not. In fact, the ark would be in this man's house on this hill, for another 40 years before King David would come and say, let's take it to its rightful spot. 40 more years God would wait for them to follow the instructions the way he laid out in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. Instead of destroying them, instead of casting them out into foreign lands because of their disobedience, God waits for the king to arrive and do what he's instructed him to do. God waits. And perhaps in the most grand display of God's waiting ability, Galatians 4.4 4 tells us that after all the years had gathered, or after the completion of time, or, as it's most popularly translated, at just the right time, God sent His Son born of a woman under the law to save those under the law. You see, when God is teaching you to wait, He is teaching you to be like Him. He waits, and His timing is perfect. He does things at just the right moment. Because at just the right time when we were dead in our trespasses and sin, God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to die on a cross so that we could be forgiven. Now, He could have saved us in a moment, He could have saved Adam and Eve right after they sinned. You realize that. He could have done that. But God waits. There are parts of his waiting that are mystery to us. I'm not attempting this morning to tell you that all of it should be simple or clear to you. But what I am telling you assuredly is that when he insists that you wait, he is not insisting upon you something that he himself has not done. He is not burdening you with a characteristic you must manifest in yourself that he himself does not possess. In fact, he is encouraging you to wait Because he wants to build you into the character of his son, Jesus Christ. Who never once in his life went off on his own impatiently or spontaneously, but rather waited for the voice of his father to instruct him where to go next. Even when that instruction said, go to Calvary. Even when that instruction said, take the whip. Even when that instruction said, go with the mocking and the spitting and the crown and the cross, he waited on the voice of his father, and then three days he waited. Three days he waited, and that silence is overwhelming, isn't it? The silence of that tomb, the silence of that ground, nobody moving, no breath heard, But what we know from Scripture, what we know from God's orchestrated design and plan is that when we wait with the Lord, it is always worth it. That stone did not stay over the tomb, but it was rolled away in order to reveal the life-giving God, Jesus Christ, Him stepping out. And as we as believers take joy and exult in that moment and we worship God, don't you think, back to Samuel, that on the day, I don't know how many people it was, but picture him, picture him with me. Use your imagination, let the Holy Spirit guide you here as we, as just let this flood your mind and your heart. He's been preaching every day for 20 years, nobody, nobody. And I don't know how many people, I don't know if it was one person at first, I don't know if it was a group of them that came, but imagine one or a group alike, they come up to Samuel and they say, hey, we've been been listening to you, we've been thinking about what you said, and I don't know what's going on in my heart, but we're turning to the Lord. I don't know what's going on, but I, I'm looking around. I'm awakened to what's going on in, inside of me, in our land, and I'm saying to you, I believe what you've been saying. Will you show me how to turn to the Lord? And then another walks in, says, hey, I don't know what he said, but I know what's going on in here, and I need to talk to you. And then they gather, and they begin to say to him, cry out to him, we, hey, we're, we're, we're repenting. We want to turn. Will you show us how? And so he gathers all the people and he tells them, just turn away. If you really want to follow the Lord, turn away. Can you imagine the joy in Samuel's heart when he realized it was happening? I don't know what you're waiting on, but we have assurances from our God that one day all those tears will be wiped. One day, all that pain will cease. One day, all those things which should be right will be made that way. And all those things that have gone wrong will be turned back to Him. I don't know what you are waiting for, but if you find in yourself that you're in a season of waiting, I can assure you of this it is better to wait with the Lord eyes on Him, than it would be to live 20 years getting what you want. Brothers and sisters, don't don't allow your heart this morning to yearn for something that you can gain today and lose tomorrow. Let your heart be moved here by this text. And by God's Spirit to say, I want to yearn for something that I can never lose. And whatever else God gives me, I'll wait for.